Chapter 39 The Hummingbird Lovers The Eagle King offered up the gift of his wings, and so the feather symbolized freedom, changes, and relaxation. I led the Eagle King back through the darkness to the medicine wheel, where he explained how he'd been long forgotten by the majority of the population. He went on to reveal how humans believed they ruled this land, but it was the four guardians who protected the earth, and for more than 2,000 years the common people had been misled by both the political leaders as well as their church. The Eagle King said that the answers are among us in nature, but these answers are always in disguise. Hidden throughout the forests, seas, and mountains, the symbolism can only be understood by the wise. The Eagle King left me by the medicine wheel, and then he ventured into the darkness on his own. But the last thing he said was this, How will you ever know what you're capable of unless you embrace and enter into the unknown? Late in the night, while darkness continued to cover the land, I reached into the medicine bag and pulled out a Bible, and there I read the book of Ezekiel, who once was a fellow human man. Seen as a major prophet, Ezekiel had a vision of God as a divine protector. Riding a battle chariot drawn by four creatures, each having four faces with unique features. In the sky, Ezekiel saw a wheel within a wheel, and this made me think of the alien crafts I had once seen. And this man had his vision long before Jesus Christ was born, as it happened around 600 BCE. Who were the four creatures Ezekiel saw, and why did they appear to him? His vision spoke of judgments, bones, and a new temple or throne where Shekinah, the divine feminine presence of God, would be returning. Still the sun had yet to rise, and it had been dark longer than one night. Now the animals and people were very much aware the sun had yet to surface, and so whispers wondered about this lack of spiritual light. As I read through the Bible, I came to another major prophet in the book of Daniel. In the seventh chapter, I read about an apocalypse, or an unveiling that included a dream for beast-like animals. First there was a lion with the wings of an eagle. Second there was a beast like a bear or ox. Third was something like a leopard. And the fourth creature sounded terrifying, as if it had ten horns. The book of Daniel said that this was connected to a human, one who spoke boastfully, and so I wondered if all these stories were mythical allegories. Thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and his wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Now which books were these? Did these books contain hidden wisdom, a boon, or a secret treasure? Then the book of Daniel said the four beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth, and the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yet forever and ever. The book went on to speak of many visions, one including a goat who crossed the earth 
without ever touching the ground. This goat attacked a great ram who symbolized the old kings, and yet the goat defeated the ram. But what was the meaning to be found? The book of Daniel spoke of desolation and war, and he even says he was deeply troubled by these thoughts. It said he was appalled by the visions, and the angels told him to roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the end time, since these visions cannot be forgotten. And at that time, Saint Michael, the prince that protects the people, will rise, and those who are wise will shine like the brightness of heaven. And this final chapter in the book of Daniel was called the end times. Now I went back to the book of Ezekiel to hear what this prophetic book had warned. It said that even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were alive, their righteousness would save no one but themselves, says the Sovereign Lord. And so this symbolizes that long ago the people praised idols, lost sight of God, and so this is when humanity reached the point of no return. But alas, I read that there is hope for creation, since God comes to destroy the evil within all nations, and so God is determined to defeat this evil and pave a new way for creation. Once evil is finally dealt with, there will be a new temple and a new city, and now the chariot carrying the four creatures returns to the new temple, and there the holy people are set free. This is a promise to restore all humanity and creation back to its life-giving presence, and Ezekiel goes on to explain just how this new temple will be prepared. There will be new humans living in a new world with tender hearts, and their sovereignty will be freed from fear, and the name of the city from that time on will be called, The Lord is There. After I close the sacred Bible, I began to envision a time when the people, animals, and creatures would be free. I envisioned the chariot carried by the four creatures, and so my intuition led me back to the sea. But right as I got there, I found a giant creature with horns that looked like a bear chewing on bones in front of me. You there, what are you doing here? said the horned creature lounging on his side. I'm looking for a king. You seen him? Yep. Not at the beast? Just ate him. Excuse me? Delicious. You want a piece? He asked. Such a curious occasion to find a creature like this. He was as big as a bear with horns on his head like an ox, and whatever was left of the human body he'd eaten was a bloody mess. Why this creature had three ribs in his mouth when he spoke. Get up and eat your fill of flesh. I'm okay. But why would you eat a king? Sick of him, he snarled. Sick of all these selfish kings. Well, I never met a human king. But you sure you gotta eat him? Now this bear or ox looked me right in the eye. Then he rose up from his side. After all the amount of animals the king's world has slaughtered, I'm just returning the favor. Don't worry, I don't waste anything. Every bite of this terrible king will be savored, said the bear. How'd you find this king? He was barely a king, rather a jealous idol lost in the illusion of profiting. He abused the masses, and he ruled over a pyramid scheme. He thinks he lived the right way, but his ego gripped the world so tight, he unknowingly pushed the people into extremes. He held so much control, 
to the point he couldn't let go. He was so gripped by his ego that he bombed the world and that's the sign when it's time to be overthrown. And the reason it's still dark is because someone summoned my release. When I awoke, I knew I had to get that nasty king. And so let us celebrate this day as a great feast, said the beast. What do you mean, released? Didn't you hear? The brass door has been opened. Rumor says there's a medicine man who walks these woods, and this is the spiritual self that has finally awoken, said the beast. Awoken? What do you mean? Our spiritual nature is coming out of hibernation, and the medicine man has awoken from a great dream. He walks upon a razor's edge, perfectly balanced upon both extremes. A shift opened the brass door. There he freed myself along with the other heavenly kings, four of us together, and so the spiritual evolution begins, said the beast. Evolution? I've been hibernating for a while, and so I've been waiting for ages behind that brass door. But now that I'm out, evil beware. You see, I'm very sensitive, and a beast like me can feel all sorts of things. God would never hurt a soul, but God needs somebody to get rid of all the wicked earthly kings. I'm aligned with the vultures, and so we're the cleanup crew who eats the nasty ones who commit terrible sins. Like I said, the spiritual self is freed, and so the awakening begins, said the bear. Awakening of what? And how could you eat a man? If I didn't destroy this human, he was going to destroy not only his people, but the animals, plants, and the entire land, said the beast. How so? How can you have energy companies that profit when there's an energy crisis? A military-industrial complex that profits when there's a war? Pharmaceutical companies that profit when there's a pandemic? They're creating a necessity for ongoing crisis. If the elites in the society benefit from situations that are detrimental to everyone else, then can't you see that our world's reality is commanded by the unrighteous? These wicked kings thrive because of war and battle, and their campaigns are funded by the sales of bullets and guns. These politicians partner with the pharmaceutical companies who are the drug dealers that fuel the world, and so this is what reality has become, said the beast. I stayed silent until I heard the half-ox, half-bear, bite down through what was left of the man's leg, and I had to look away when I saw the blood still coming out from the dead king's severed head. Even though it's been ages since someone let us out, trust me when I say I'm a protector of this land. This king's death is a sign that the hibernation is over, and without a doubt, I'll take down the wicked ones, be it a creature, woman, or man, said the beast. But killing seems extreme. Isn't there another way? I'm afraid this is just the beginning, and so the old debts must be paid. Now that the four heavenly kings are loose, we're going to do whatever it takes until only peace on earth remains. Please don't think of us as cruel or nasty. It's more so that I don't fancy the ways of the corrupt women and man. And I already know humans will kill whoever it takes to survive. But I promise, if I have to, I'll bring every last one of them to their end, said the beast. Then is anyone safe? Let me explain, said the beast. He took another bite 
but I was too stunned to speak. Was he going to eat me too? And now this half bear, half oxen began to eat the dead man's oblique. You know, eating this man got me thinking, because some would say that my ferocious attitude has quite a lot of pride. But unlike the wicked leaders and corrupt businessmen, I'm willing to do anything so that all beings can thrive. See, I've changed my ways, and now I hunt with great respect, because I only kill anything that threatens the hummingbird lovers. So as long as you have the decency to care for Earth's creatures, then I won't kill you next," said the beast. Now this heavenly creature got excited, and he dropped the remains of the dead man. He began running in circles and acting quite goofy upon this land. Mind you, it was still pitch black, and I wondered if I should run. But this bearish beast had not threatened me, and now he appeared to be having so much fun. Come, come, let me show you what I've discovered. The earth still has great hope, as long as there is space in life left for the hummingbird lovers, said the beast. He led me off the beaten path, where there was no trail. Wherever we were going, I couldn't remember where I was to catch any of the details. When we did arrive, I could barely see through the dark, but there up ahead, I saw two tiny hummingbird lovers that refused to be apart. First you need to know that there are many forms of love. The ancient Greeks spoke of agape, non-erotic love. This is what the Bible calls brotherly love. Then there is eros, both in the sense of sexual love and the wider sense of love as the bonding and uniting urge of all things. The Romans spoke of amor, the complete union of one body and soul with another body and soul. These forms and all other forms of love are the living expression of the lover energy. Know that the lover, by whatever name, is the primal energy pattern of what we call vividness, aliveness, and passion. It lives through the great primal hungers of our species for sex, food, well-being, reproduction, creative adaptation to life's hardships, and ultimately, a sense of meaning. The lover's drive is to satisfy those hungers, said the beast. So you're not just a killer, you're a hummingbird's protector. Well, I like to think of myself as a lover, the beast paused. The lover archetype is primary to the psyche also because it is the energy of sensitivity to the outer environment. It expresses what unions call the sensation function, the function of the psyche that is trained in all the details of sensory experience, the function that notices colors and forms, sounds, tactile sensations and smells. The lover also monitors the changing textures of the inner psychological world as it responds to incoming sensory impressions. We can easily see the survival value of this energy potential for our distant, rodent-like ancestors who struggle for survival in this dangerous world," he said. So how does the lover show up in men today? How does he help us to survive and even flourish? What are the lover's characteristics? The lover in his or her fullness is the archetype of play and the display of healthy embodiment of being in the world of sensuous pleasure and being comfortable in one's own body without shame. Thus the lover is deeply sensual, sensually aware and sensitive to the physical world in its entire splendor. 
the lover is related and connected to them all, drawn into them through this sensitivity. This sensitivity leads to feeling compassionately and empathetically united with them. For the man accessing the lover, all things are bound to each other in a mysterious way. He sees, as we say, the world in a grain of sand. This is the consciousness that knew long before the invention of holography that we live in. In fact, that a holographic universe, one in which every part reflects every other in immediate and sympathetic union. It isn't just that the lover energy sees the world in a grain of sand. He feels that this is so. You know, there once was a young boy who entered therapy at the insistence of his parents, because as they said, he was very strange. He was, they said, spending too much time alone. What this boy reported, when asked about this supposed strangeness, was that he would go on long walks in the forest until he found a secluded spot. He would sit down on the ground and watch the ants and the other insects making their twisted ways throughout the blades of grass, the fallen leaves, and the other tiny plants on the forest floor. Then he said, he would begin to feel what the world is like for the ants. He would imagine himself as an ant. He would feel the sensations of the ant as it climbed over the pebbles, to him, huge rocks, and swayed precariously on the end of the leaves. Perhaps even more remarkable, the boy reported that he could feel what it was like to be the lichen on the trees and the cool, damp moss on the fallen logs. He experienced the hunger and the joy, the suffering and the satisfaction of the whole animal and plant world. The boy was accessing the hummingbird lover energy in a powerful way. He was instinctively empathizing with the world of things around him. Perhaps he was really feeling, as he believes he was, the actual experience of those things. I believe that the man accessing the lover is open to a collective unconscious, perhaps even vaster than that which Carl Jung proposed. Jung's collective unconscious is the unconscious of human beings as a collective species and contains, as Jung said, the unconscious memories of all that has ever happened in the lives of all the people that have ever lived. But if, as Jung suggested, the collective unconscious appears to be limitless, so why stop here? What if the collective unconscious is vast enough to include the impressions and sensations of all living things? Perhaps, indeed, it includes that some scientists are now calling primary awareness, even in plants. Eastern philosophers have said that we are like the waves on the surface of this vast sea. The lover energy has immediate and intimate contact with this underlying oceanic connectedness. Along with sensitivity to all inner and outer things comes passion. The lover's connectedness is not primarily intellectual. It is through feeling. The primal hungers are felt passionately in all of us, at least beneath the surface. But the lover knows this with a deep knowing. Being close to the unconscious means being close to fire, to the fires of life, and on the biological level, to the fires of the life-engendering metabolic processes. Love, as we all know, is hot, and often too hot to handle. The man under the influence of the lover wants to touch and be touched, 
He wants to touch everything physically and emotionally, and he wants to be touched by everything. He recognizes no boundaries. He wants to live out the connectedness he feels with the world inside, in the context of his powerful feelings, and outside, in the context of his relationships with other people. Ultimately, he wants to experience the world of sensual experience in its totality. He has what is known as an aesthetic consciousness. He experiences everything, no matter what it is aesthetically. All of life is art to him, and evokes subtly nuanced feelings. The nomads of the Kalahari Desert are lovers. They are aesthetically attuned to everything in their environment. They see hundreds of colors in their desert world. Subtle nuances of light and shadow and shades of what to us are simply browns or tans. The lover energy arises as it does out of the Oedipal child. It is also the source of spirituality, especially of what we call mysticism. In the mystical traditions, which underlies and is present in all world religions, the lover energy, through the mysteries, perceives the ultimate oneness of all that is and actively seeks to experience that oneness in daily life, while it still dwells in a mortal, finite man. The same boy who could imagine himself as an ant also reported what we could see as the beginnings of mystical experience in his account of a particular feeling he had on certain occasions at a YMCA camp one summer. Once a week, the campers would be roused from their beds late at night and trek along the obscure forest paths in the pitch darkness to a central clearing, there to watch a reenactment of the ancient Native American songs and dances. The boy said that often, as he was snaking his way along behind the other boys from his cabin, he would have the almost uncontrollable urge to open his arms wide to the darkness and fly into it. Feeling the trees would tear through his spiritual body with no pain, just a feeling of ecstasy. He said he felt like he wanted to be one with the mystery of the dark unknown and with that threatening yet strange reassuring night forest. These kind of sensations are exactly what the mystics of the world religions describe when they talk about their urge to become one with mystery. For the man accessing the lover, ultimately, everything in life is experienced in this way. While feeling the pain and poignancy of the world, he feels great joy as well. He feels joy and delight in all the sensory experiences of life. He may know for example, the joy of opening a cigar humidor and smelling the exotic aromas of the tobaccos. He may also be sensitive to music. He may feel exquisitely the eerie thrumming of the Indian sitar, the swelling of a great symphony, or the aesthetic thunk of the Arab clay drum. Writing may be a sensuous experience for him. When we have asked writers why so many of them feel that they have to smoke when they sit down to type, they have told us that the smoking relaxes them by opening up their sense to impressions, feelings, and the nuances of words. They feel deeply connected by doing this with what they call the earth or the world. Inside and outside come together in one continuous whole, and they are able to create languages. The different sounds and subtle meanings of words will be approached through the lover's emotional appreciation. Other people may learn languages in a mechanical way, but men accessing the lover learn them by feeling them. Even highly abstract thoughts, 
like philosophies, theology, or sciences are felt through the sense. Alfred North Whitehead, the great 20th century philosopher and mathematician, makes this clear in his writings, at once technical and deeply feeling-toned, even sensual. And a professor in the higher mathematics reported being able to feel, as he put it, what the fourth dimension is like. The man profoundly in touch with the lover energy experiences his work and the people on the job with him through this aesthetic consciousness. He can read people like a book. He is often excruciatingly sensitive to their shifts in mood and can feel their hidden motives. This can be a very painful experience indeed. The lover is not, then, only the archetype of joy of life in his capacity to feel at one with others and with the world. He must also feel their pain. Other people may be able to avoid pain, but the man in touch with the lover must endure it. He feels the painfulness of being alive, both for himself and for others. Here we have the image of Jesus weeping for a city, Jerusalem, for his disciples, for all of humanity, and taking the sorrow of the world upon himself as the man of sorrows, one acquainted with grief, as the Bible says. The man under the influence of the lover does not want to stop at socially created boundaries. He stands against the artificially of such things. His life is often unconventional and messy. The artist's studio, the creative scholar's study, the go-for-it boss's desk. Consequently, because he is opposed to law, in this broad sense, we see enacted in his life the confrontation with the conventional old tension between sensuality and morality, between love and duty, between, as Joseph Campbell poetically describes it, amour and Roma, amour standing for the passionate experience, and Roma standing for duty and responsibility to law and order. The lover energy is thus utterly opposed, at least at first glance, to the other energies of the mature masculine. The lover's interests are the opposite side of the protectors, magicians, and the king's concerns for boundaries, containment, order, and discipline. What is true within each man's psyche is true in the panorama of history and cultures as well, said the second heavenly king. Now you speak about history and cultures, but how did we get to where we are now? The way of the lover, king, magician, and protector seems so obvious. But was there a time when this path was hidden or not allowed? In the history of our religions and cultures that flow from them, we can see this pattern of tension between the lover and the other archetypes of the mature masculine. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, what are called moral or ethical religions, have all persecuted the lover. Christianity has taught more or less consistently that the world the very object of the lover's devotion is evil, that the lord of the world is Satan, and that it is he who is the source of the sensuous pleasures, the foremost of which is sex. And so it is believed that this is what Christians or Muslims must avoid. The church has often stood opposed to artists, innovators, and creators. In the late Roman period, when the church first gained power, one of the things it did was close the theater Soon after, it closed the brothels and forbade the displaying of pornographic art. There was no room for the lover, not, at least, in his erotic expression. 
Following the ancient Hebrew practice, the church also persecuted psychics and mediums, people who along with the artists and others live very close to the image-making unconscious and hence to the lover. Here is a source of the witch burnings of the Middle Ages. Some of the witches, as far as the church was concerned, were not only psychic, that is, deeply intuitive and sensitive to impressions from the inner world of the nuanced feelings, but they were also nature worshippers. Because the church labeled the world of nature evil, because the church labeled the world of nature evil, the witches were believed to be worshippers of Satan, the lover. To this day, many Christians are still scandalized by one truly erotic book in the Bible, the Song of Solomon. It is a series of love poems based on ancient Canaanite fertility rituals, and it is pornographic in the best sense of the word. It describes the amour, the physical and spiritual bonding between a man and a woman. The only way that these moralistic Christians can accept the Song of Solomon is by interpreting it as an allegory of Christ's love for the church. Archetypes cannot be banished or wished away. The lover crept back into Christianity in the form of Christian mysticism through romantic and sentimental pictures of a sweet Jesus, meek and mild, and through the hymnal. If we think for a moment about the erotic undertones in such hymns as In the Garden, Love Lifted Me, and Jesus, Lover of My Soul, to mention a few, we can see the lover coloring an essentially aesthetic and moralistic religion with his irrepressible passion. The love between the Father and Son in the doctrine of the Trinity is often described in terms little short of libidinous, and the doctrine of the Incarnation itself proclaims God's historical impregnation of a human woman and through their union, God's permanent and intimate intercourse with all human beings. It is the presence of the lover in the Christian mystical experience and theological thought that underlies the Church's ambivalent, but nonetheless sacramental, view of the material universe. But for all of this, the Christian Church overall has remained hostile to the lover. The lover has fared little better in Judaism. In Orthodox Judaism, the lover, projected onto women, is still depreciated. Some traditional Jewish prayer books still include as part of the preliminary morning service the sentence, Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a woman. And in Judaism, so the story goes, Eve was the one who first sinned. This slander against women, and by implication, against the lover with whom she has been linked, sets the stage for the Jewish and later Christian and Muslim notion of the woman as a seductress who works to distract pious men from their pursuit of holiness. In Islam, women have been notoriously depreciated and oppressed. Islam is a religion of protector energy aestheticism, but even here the lover has not been banished. The Muslim paradise after death is shown as a lover territory. Here all that the Muslim saints have forsworn and repressed in this earthly life is restored to him in the form of an endless banquet at which he is attended by beautiful women, the black-eyed Horus. Hinduism is different. It is not a moralistic or ethical religion in the same sense that Western religions are. Its spirituality is much more aesthetic and mystical. At the same time, 
Hinduism celebrates the oneness of all beings in Brahman and the human oneness with God in Atman. It can also rejoice in the world of form and delight in the realms of the senses. The Hindu worshipper sees the form of many gods and goddesses to experience, many exotic shapes and colors, half animal and half human, plants and even stones, all of them the manifold and sensuously luxurating forms of the one who stands behind them, pouring infinite love and passion into them. Hinduism celebrates the erotic aspects of the lover, divinely incarnated into the world in its sacred love poetry, the Karma Sutra, and in the arousing forms of some of its temple sculptures. If you think that the king, protector, magician, and the lover are fundamentally opposed, a visit to the Hindu temple at Kanark will correct this impression. At Kanark, gods and goddesses, men and women, are shown savoring in every conceivable sexual position in an ecstasy of union with each other, with the universe, and with God. In this connection, a man in his early thirties, feeling stifled and sterile in both his work and his personal life, came in for analysis. He was an accountant, and he was feeling increasingly detached from his daily ciphering and figuring. He felt hemmed in by the codes of behavior that can be a part of any number of such straight professions as he described them. He felt cut off from, as he said, the muck and mire of the real world. It became clear that he was not in touch with the lover within. He then had a dream, which he called the dream of the Indian girl. In the dream, he found himself in India, a place he had never thought much about before. He was walking through a rat-infested slum. What struck him first were the colors, blues, orange, whites, reds, and maroons. Then it was the smells, exotic spices and perfumes, along with the stench of human waste and decaying garbage. He climbed a rickety staircase to a second-floor apartment, and there he saw a dirty but radiantly beautiful dusky Indian girl dressed in rags. They made love on a stained and dirty mattress on the floor. When he woke up, he felt the sense of excitement, refreshment, and joy he had never known before. He described this as a feeling of spirituality. In the dream, he had felt the presence of God as an erotic, sensuous being, one who enjoyed the lovemaking right along with him. This was a revelation to him, and he began to access with great benefit to himself and his sexual partners the mature masculine energies of the lover, said the second heavenly king. O beloved heavenly king, I adore your wisdom and word so dearly. I have fallen into the same patterns where I have lost the lover within, and so I ask, what ways of life manifest the lover most clearly? There are two primary ways, the artist and the psychic. Painters, musicians, poets, sculptures, and writers are often channeling the lover within. The artist is well known to be sensitive and sensual, and their personal lives are typically stormy, messy, and like a labyrinth, full of ups and downs, failed marriages, and often substance abuse. They live very closely to the fiery power of the creative unconscious. In a similar way, genuine psychics also live in a world of sensations and vibrations of deeply felt intuitions. Their conscious awareness, like that of the artist, is extraordinarily open to invasion from other people's thoughts and feelings 
and from the murky realm of the collective unconscious. They seem to move in a world behind or beneath the world of daylight common sense. From this hidden world they receive, often in the form of almost audible words, gusts of strong feelings, unaccounted for smells, sensations of heat and cold not accessible to others, images of great horror and beauty, and clues about what is really going on with people. They may even receive impressions about the future. All those men who are successfully reading cards, tea leaves, and poems are accessing the lover who binds all things together under the surface, who even binds the future with the present. The businessman who has hunches is also accessing the lover. So are all of us when we have premonitions and intuitions about people, situations, or our own future. In those moments, the underlying unity of things is revealed to us, even in mundane ways, and we are drawn into lover energy, which connects us with realities of which we are not normally aware. Any artist or creative endeavor, and almost every profession, from farming to stockbroking, from house painting to computer software designing, is drawing upon the energies of the lover for creativity. So are the connoisseurs, those men who really appreciate fine foods, wines, tobaccos, coins, primitive artifacts, and a host of other material objects. So are the so-called buffs. Steam train buffs have a sensuous, even erotic, affinity for these great, shining black phalluses. The car lover, looking for just the right Corvette. The used car appraiser, who delights in touching and smelling the cars, and looking for the beauty and the defects beneath the rust and the soiled interiors. The fan of the particular literary genre or rock group. All are accessing the lover. The connoisseur of rich coffees, of chocolates, the antique dealer who cherishes a Ming vase, turning it over and over in his hands. The lover is expressing himself through them all. The minister, whose sermons are animated by images and stories, who is, as the Native American said, is thinking with his heart instead of solely with his head, is accessing the lover. The lover is singing through his sermons. All of us, when we stop and just let ourselves be and feel without the pressures to perform, when we stop to smell the roses, are feeling the lover. Through love, we can be transported into a divine world of ecstasy and pleasure on one hand, and pain and sorrow on the other. The whole world looks and feels different to us, more alive, more vivid, more meaningful, for better or for worse, as this is the work of the lover. Now before we move on to the shadow side of the lover, we want to take note of the old issue of monogamy versus polygamy and promiscuity. Monogamy arises out of the amour form of love, in which one man and one woman give themselves, body and soul, in each other, in each other alone. It shows up in the mythical world in the stories about the love between Egyptian god Osiris and his wife, Isis, and the Canaanite god, Baal's love for his wife. In Hindu mythology, there is the underlying love between Shiva and Parvati, and in the Bible, we see the long-suffering love of Yahweh for Israel, his bride. Monogamy is our ideal today, but the lover also expresses himself through polygamy, serious monogamy, or promiscuity. In mythology, this is shown in the Hindu Krishna's love for the gopis, the female cowherds. He loves each of them fully, 
with all his infinite capacity to love, so that each feels absolutely special and valued. In Greek mythology, Zeus has many beloveds in the divine and human world. In human history, the lover in this guise has manifested in the kingly harems, viewed from the monogamous perspective with such horror and, at the same time, such fascination. The Egyptian pharaoh Ramses II is believed to have over, over 100 wives, not to mention innumerable concubines. The biblical kings, David and Solomon, had large harems of charming women, and, as we see in the king and I, so did the king of Sam. Some wealthy Muslim and Mormon men to this day maintain a number of wives and concubines. The lover manifests in all of these social arrangements, said the second heavenly king. And what about the shadow? I'm learning that the pinnacle of each direction has its two lower poles. Surely there are shadow sides that balance the lover's whole. The shadow lover consists of the addicted lover and the impotent lover. A man living in either pole of the lover's shadow, like a man living any of the shadow forms of the masculine energies, is possessed by the very energy that could be a source of life and well-being for him, if accessed appropriately. As long as he is possessed by the shadow lover, however, the energy works to his destruction and to the destruction of others around him. The most forceful and urgent question a man identified with the addicted lover asks is, why should I put any limits on my sensual and sexual experiences of this vast world, a world that holds unending pleasures for me? How does the addict possess a man? The primary and most deeply disturbing characteristic of the shadow lover as an addict is his lostness, which shows up in a number of ways. A man possessed by the shadow lover becomes literally lost in an ocean of the sense, not just in sunsets or in revere. The slightest impressions from the outer world are enough to pull him off center. He gets drawn into the loneliness of a train whistle in the night, into the emotional devastation of a fight at the office, into the blandishments of the women he encounters on the street. Pulled first one way and then another, he is not the master of his own fate. He becomes the victim of his own sensitivity. He becomes enmeshed in the world of sights, sounds, smells, and tactile sensations. We can think here of the painter Van Gogh, who got lost in his paint and canvases, and in the violent dynamicism of nighttime stars he depicted. There is the case of the excruciatingly sensitive man who could not tolerate the least bit of light in his room at night, who went literally crazy because of the noises from other apartments in his building, and who, at the same time, was a brilliant would-be composer. He couldn't keep melodies and lyrics from running through his thoughts. He heard them audibly in a desperate attempt to keep his life minimally structured. He wrote hundreds of memoranda to himself and stuck them up around his apartment on the mirrors, over his bed, on the coffee table, on the door frames. In a frenzy, he ran from one note to the other, typing frantically to meet every obligation. His life was chaos of oversensitivity. He was lost in his own senses. Another man was studying Hebrew at night school. Possessed by the addicted lover, he approached the language sensuously, delighting at every one of the strange characters and feeling profoundly every sound and the subtle nuances of the words. Eventually, he reached a point at which he was totally absorbed by his feelings and he could not continue to learn. 
He couldn't achieve the detachment necessary to memorize. He lost that energy to take in even one more word, and though he had started at the top of his class, he soon fell to the bottom. He was not controlling and mastering the language, it was controlling him. He became an addict to Hebrew, a victim of the feelings he found in it. He became lost. One man had a love for vintage cars that exceeded his income. He was lured on and on, lost in their glistening beauty, oblivious to the drain on his finances, until the day harsh reality came knocking and he discovered he was bankrupt. Then he had to sell his beloved cars to keep himself afloat. There is a story of an artist who took the last money in his house, the money his wife needed to buy their two babies formula for the next week, and he spent it on grease pencils and pastels for the art projects he was working on. He loved his life and children, but as he said, he felt absolutely compelled to express his art. He got lost in it. Finally, he lost his family. These are stories of so-called addictive personalities, people who can't stop eating or drinking or smoking or using drugs. A young man who was a heavy cigarette smoker was warned by his doctor to quit, or he was liable to get lung cancer. Though he wanted to live, he simply could not quit. He enjoyed the sensual satisfaction of the cigarette so much, he did die, smoking to the end, lost in the chemical and emotional addiction of tobacco. This lostness shows up in the way that the addict lives for the pleasure of the moment only and locks up into a web of immobility from which we cannot escape. This is what is talked about as the sin of sensuality, and it's what the Hindus talk about as Maya, the dance of magic or illusion, the intoxicating dance of sensuous things that enchants and enthralls the mind in the cycles of pleasure and pain. What happens when we are caught in the fire of love, roasting in the agony and the ecstasy of our own longings, is that we are unable to disincarnate, to step back, to act. We are unable to, as we say, come to ourselves. We are unable to detach and gain distance from our feelings. Many are the lives that are ruined because people cannot extricate themselves from destructive marriages and relationships. Whenever we feel ourselves caught in an addictive relationship, we had better be aware because the chances are very good that we have become victims of the shadow lover. In his lostness, within and without, the victim of the active pull of the shadow lover is eternally restless. This is the man who is always searching for something. He doesn't know what it is he's looking for, but he's the cowboy at the end of the movie riding off alone in the sunset seeking some other excitement, some other adventure, unable to settle down. He has an insatiable hunger to experience some vague something that is just over the next hill. He is compelled to extend the frontiers not of knowledge, but of his sensuality. No matter what the cost of the moral man who badly needs, as all mortal men do, merely human happiness. Here's where we see Don Juan syndrome, and where we can touch base with the monogamy or promiscuity issue again. Monogamy can be seen as the product of a man's own deep-rootedness and centeredness. He is bounded, not by external rules, but by his own inner structures, his own sense of his masculine well-being and calm, and his own inner joy. But the man moving from one woman to another, compulsively searching for he knows not what, is a man whose inner structures have not yet solidified. Because he himself is fragmented within, 
and not centered. He is pushed and pulled around by the illusory wholeness he thinks is out there in the world of feminine forms and sensual experiences. For the addict, the world presents itself as tantalizing fragments of a lost whole. Caught in the myriads of forms, as the Hindus say, he can't find the oneness that would bring him calm and stability. Living on the finite side of the prism, he can only experience light in its dazzling but fractured rainbow hues. There is another way of talking about what the ancient religions called idolatry. The addicted lover unconsciously invests the finite fragments of his experience with the power of the unity, which he can never experience. This shows up again in the interesting phenomenon of pornography collections. Men under the fragmenting energy of the addict will often amass huge collections of photos or videos of naked women and then arrange them in categories like breasts, legs, and so on. Then they will examine the breasts, the legs, and delight in comparing them, and they'll do so with all the aspects of pornography and female anatomy. They marvel at the beauty of the parts, but they can't experience a woman as a whole being physically or psychologically, and certainly not as a unity of body and soul, a complete person with whom they could have an intimate human relationship. There is an unconscious inflation in this idolatry, for the mortal man in his frame of mind experiences these images in the infinite sensuality of the God who made them in all their variety and who delights in the fragments of his creation as in the whole. This man, captured by the addicted lover, is unconsciously identifying himself with God as lover. The restlessness of the man under the power of the addict is an expression of his search for a way out of the spider's web. The man who is possessed by the web of Maya is twisting and turning, frantically struggling to find a way out of the world. Stop the world, I want to get off, he says. But instead of taking the only way out there is, he struggles and deepens his predicament. He thrashes in quicksand and continues to sink deeper. This happens because what he thinks is the way out is really the way deeper in. What the addict is seeking, though he doesn't know it, is the ultimate and continuous orgasm, the ultimate and continuous high. This is why he rides from village to village, from adventure to adventure. This is why he goes from one woman to the other. Each time his woman confronts him with her morality, her finitude, her weakness and limitations, hence shattering his dream of this time finding the orgasm without end, in other words, when the excitement of the illusion of perfect union with her becomes tarnished, he saddles up his horse and rides out looking for renewal of his ecstasy. He needs his fix of masculine joy. He really does. He just doesn't know where to look for it. He ends by looking for his spirituality in a line of cocaine. Psychologists talk about the problems that stem from a man's possession by the addict as boundary issues. For a man possessed by the addict, there are no boundaries. As we've said, the shadow lover does not want to be limited, and when we are possessed by him, we cannot stand to be limited. A man possessed by the addicted lover is really a man possessed by the unconscious, his own personal unconscious and the collective unconscious, said the second heavenly king. Oh boy, I've been there. He is overwhelmed by it, as if being swallowed by the sea. The fact that the unconscious appears as a lake or ocean is very much in keeping the universal image 
of the unconscious as the chaotic deep of the Bible, as the primeval ocean of the ancient creation myths from which the masculine world of structure merged. This oceanic chaos, the unconscious, is, as we have seen, imagined in many myths as the feminine. It is the mother, and it represents the baby boy's claustrophobic sense of merging with her. If a man is threatened by the overwhelming force of his unresolved mother issues, what he needs to do is develop his masculine ego structures outside the feminine unconscious. He needs to go back to the hero stage of the masculine development and slay the dragon. This is exactly what the attic prevents us from doing. It stands opposed to boundaries, but boundaries, constructed with heroic effort, are what a man possessed by the attic needs most. He doesn't need more oneness with all things. He's already got too much of that. What he needs is distance and detachment. We can see then how the shadow lover as addict is a carryover from childhood into adulthood of the absorption into the mother of the mama's boy. The man under the power of the addict is still within the mother and he's struggling to get out. If the mama's boy's desire is to touch what is forbidden to touch, the addict, arising as he does out of the mama's boy, must learn about the usefulness of boundaries the hard way. He must learn that his lack of masculine structure, his lack of discipline, his resulting affairs, and his authority problems will inevitably get him into trouble. He will be fired from his job, and his wife, who loves him dearly, will leave him. Said the second heavenly king, Oh goodness, I've been fired and let go from jobs. So what happens if we feel that we are out of touch with the lover in his fullness? when we are then possessed by the impotent lover. We experience our lives in an unfeeling way. We feel the sterility and flatness that the accountant reported. We will feel symptoms such as lack of enthusiasm, lack of vividness, lack of aliveness. We will feel bored and lifeless. We may have trouble getting up in the morning and trouble going to sleep. We may find ourselves speaking in monotone. We may find ourselves increasingly alienated from our family, our co-workers, and our friends. We may feel hungry, but lack an appetite. Everything begins to feel like the passage in the biblical book of Ecclesiastes that declares, All is vanity and a striving after wind. And there is nothing new under the sun. In short, we will become depressed. People who are habitually possessed by the impotent lover are chronically depressed. They feel a lack of connection with others, and they feel cut off from themselves. We see this in therapy often. A therapist will be able to tell from the expression on a client's face or from their body language that some feeling is trying to express itself. But if we ask the person what he or she is feeling, they will have no idea. They may say something like, I don't know. I just feel there's a kind of fog. Everything is just hazy. This often happens when the client is getting too close to really hot material. What happens then is that the shield goes up between the conscious ego and that feeling. The shield is depression. This disconnection can reach serious proportions known as disassociative phenomena, a condition in which the person may start speaking about himself in the third person. He or she may have a sense of himself as unreal. His life may seem like a movie that he or she is watching. These people are seriously possessed by the impotent lover. But we all know that when we're depressed, 
We just don't have the motivation to do the things we either want to do or have to do. This frequently happens to the elderly. Their physical problems, isolation, and lack of useful work plunges them into depression. The zest for life is gone. The lover seems nowhere to be found. Pretty soon these older men stop fixing meals for themselves. They feel that there is nothing to live for. The Bible says that, without a vision, the people perish. It is specifically without imagining and envisioning of the lover that people perish. But it isn't just the lack of a vision that signifies the oppressive power of the impotent lover in a man's life. It is also the absence of an erect and eager penis. The man's sex life has gone stale. He is sexually inactive. Such sexuality inactivity may stem from a number of actors. Boredom and lack of ecstasy with his maid, smothering anger out of his relationship, tension and stress on the job, money worries, or the sense of being emasculated by the feminine or by the other men in his life. In conjunction with the impotent lover, this man is either regressed into a pre-sexual boy or he is mainlining either the protector or the magician who are the last two heavenly kings. His sexual and sensual sensitivity has been overwhelmed by other concerns. As his sexual partner becomes more demanding, he withdraws even further into the passive pole of the lover shadow. At this point, the opposite pole of the archetypal shadow release him by propelling him into the addict's quest for the perfect satisfaction of his sexuality beyond the mundane world of his primary relationship," said the second heavenly king. Of course, of course. So we may drift from one of the lower poles to the other. But tell me, great guardian and protector of love, how can we access the lover? You got a chalice or a cup? A cup? I reached into the medicine bag and pulled out the chalice. Yup, fill it up, said the second heavenly king. This beast had some honey, and so he mixed it with water. Then at once the hummingbirds flew over and began to drink. Yes, now I was accessing the lover. In many shamanic societies, if you came to a shaman or medicine person complaining of being disheartened, dispirited, or depressed, they would ask one of four questions. When did you stop dancing? When did you stop singing? When did you stop being enchanted by stories? When did you stop finding comfort in the sweet territory of silence? Wherever we have stopped dancing, singing, being enchanted by stories, or finding the comfort in silence is where we have experienced the loss of soul. Dancing, singing, art, creativity, storytelling, and silence are great universal healing medicines. If we are appropriately accessing the lover, but keeping our ego structures strong, we feel related, connected, alive, enthusiastic, compassionate, empathetic, energized, and romantic about our lives, goals, work, and our achievements. It is the lover, properly accessed, that gives us a sense of meaning, what we have been calling spirituality. It is the lover who is the source of our longings for a better world for others and ourselves. The lover is an idealist and the dreamer. He is the one who wants us to have an abundance of good things. I have come to bring you life, that you might have it more abundantly, says the lover. The lover keeps the other masculine energies humane, loving, and related to each other and to the real-life situation of human beings struggling in a difficult world. The king, the protector, 
and the magician harmonize well with each other. They do so because without the lover, they are essentially detached from life. They need the lover to energize them, to humanize them, and to give them their ultimate purpose of love, said the second heavenly king. And when I think of creation, no life would appear without love, for the sex connection is creation, and this is where all beings come from. Yes, and just as the king, the protector, and the magician need the lover, the lover needs them as well. The lover without boundaries is in his chaos of feeling and sensuality, needs the king to define limits for him, to give him structure, to order his chaos so that it can be channeled creatively. Without limits, the lover energy turns negative and destructive. The lover also needs the protector in order to be able to act decisively, in order to detach, with the clean cut of the sword, from the web of immobilizing sensuality. The lover needs the protector to destroy the illusions, delusions, and idols which keeps him fixated, and the lover needs the magician to help him back off from the ensnaring effect of his emotions, in order to reflect, to get more objective perspective on things to disconnect, enough at least to see the big picture and to experience the reality beneath the seeming. Tragically, the unrelenting attacks on our vitality and on our shining begins in our early years. Many of us have repressed the lover in us that it has become very hard for us to feel passionate about anything in our lives. The trouble with most of us is not that we feel too much passion, but that we don't feel passion at all. We don't feel our joy. We don't feel able to be alive and to live our lives in the way we wanted to live them when we began. Now the secret key is when we become united with the present moment, to observe our surroundings, to notice where we are without thinking about the past or the future, to be here now. Embracing the reality of this moment, embracing all that is around us, it is meditation and action to disconnect from the ongoing thoughts in our heads and to reconnect with the present moment, to notice what is in front of us, to notice what we are healing, to listen and to be present for others. We may even think that feeling and in particular our feelings are annoying encumbrances and inappropriate for a man. But let us not surrender our lives. Let us find the spontaneity and the joy of life inside ourselves. Then not only will we live our lives more abundantly, but we will enable others to live, perhaps for the first time in their lives, said the second heavenly king. He raised the cup in my hand. There the hummingbird lovers lingered, and after another moment, one of the birds took a seat and landed on my finger. Animals don't want to fight, they just want to survive, but it's hard to do so when the human man attacks their land, said the second heavenly king. Now more hummingbirds flew closer out of curiosity, and their wings flew at a pace I'd never seen. Why these hummingbirds were like fairies, and this uplifted presence made me wonder if I'd slipped into a great dream. All animals and humans have the potential to live in the god realm. But it just so happens that the animals are often on the run for their lives. If they weren't threatened by our actions, if we lived with stillness to observe and not threaten them, we'd discover the joy in all the rest of the archetypes. You see, animals can mirror humans. They can even teach us a lot too, like how to live in union with God in nature. But we must first be aware of what we put them through. 
if we look out through the eye of a hummingbird. As soon as you are gentle, they are eating out of the palm of your hand, but they'll be gone in an instant if you were to threaten them. Every creature and being is sensitive, including humans, and their minds can shift from sleepy to aggressive in less than one second. By coming into our own calmness and living in union with nature, the animals will soften when they are not threatened. This is the lover energy, and it is the heavenly cure for the land, for love is so potent that an open heart upon the earth will forever be remembered by man, said the second heavenly king.